Welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YGPM is a PubMed Index quarterly journal edited by the Yale Medical graduate and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through the YGPM podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue subject matter. This episode is part of a special series devoted to the intersection between systemic racism and health. I'm your host, Felicia Hong, a first-year graduate student in environmental health sciences. Today, I am joined by Dr. Dr. Roger Staggers, a social and behavioral sciences lecturer at the Yale School of Public Health, whose research focuses on racial and ethnic health inequities. Dr. Staggers, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. To start off, can I have you talk a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. So um, as you mentioned, I'm a social researcher. So specifically, I'm a medical sociologist. Um, medical sociologist, I often have to explain what that is. So medical sociologists are sociologists that study um, health and behavior. And we typically do this in, in two spaces, either inside of the healthcare system. So um, sociologists, you know, in medicine, and then uh, sociologists who are in the field, who are looking at society broadly and looking at social factors that become drivers of health inequities that we see making some people um, sicker than others um, based on their social circumstances. That sounds super cool. So when did you become interested in the relationship between racism and adverse health outcomes in African Americans specifically? Right, and I, I probably should have said that too in my background. I was, my undergraduate experience, I was trained at Howard University. Um, I later went on to get a public health degree and then I went back to Howard for my doctorate. And I think in terms of the question, in terms of my early interest, going to a university, it was pretty much the norm to have in-depth conversations about the impact of race and racism on uh, the current status of African-Americans and, and Black people in the U.S. and beyond. Um, one of my early classes, I think as an undergraduate, was a course called The Psychology of Race and Racism by Dr. Jules Harrell. Um, and he studied um, the racism and the impact on uh, the health outcomes in Black people. Um, so I remember as an undergrad going over to the lab and we would actually, um, there were probes that were attached to uh, student or volunteers. We would be exposed to um, stimuli and you know it would be noted in terms of changes in terms of blood pressure um, as a result of seeing something that could very well um, um, cause someone to, to become upset or to, to, to really change um, their feeling behavior but we saw we noted the physiological differences there um, I think that was probably early on and I think that most students I think psychology students at Howard loved that course for that reason because we we're able to see the inexperience as well, the association between racism and health outcomes. But also, uh, what I, and this is part of the reason why I selected to go back to Howard for my doctoral study, um, a number of the scholars who I studied under, I think of my, my advisor, um, Ivor Livingston, who studied stress. But the idea of studying stress is to look at the factors such as discrimination and how discrimination as a stress factor leads to poor health outcomes in people of African descent in the US and beyond. So able, you know, being able to note those differences to have been significant and for my dissertation, I, I chose to continue on this, this vein of research, though, to look at discrimination and the impacts on, at that time, Black women and health outcomes, looking at obesity specifically. 
how discrimination can be a, a factor that could lead to uh, differences um, in obesity rates in Black women. So whether you know people uh, were stressed and uh, as a result of continuous discrimination, and they would seek out foods that were not um, as healthy as a way to cope, in a way to kind of stave off um, a, a psychological response or other physiological responses. Although noting that down the road there would be longer um, health consequences that were, that would would come uh, from that type of behavior. Um, you know, I would study the work of Nancy Krieger as well um, from Harvard, who studied discrimination and the impact of health. And that was one of the theories I was most interested in, looking at um, eco-social theory and how I can combine eco-social theory with uh, different types of intersectionality theories, uh, such as Black feminist thought, and how collectively could we could really look at how a racism as a factor could could very well um, uh, could could lead to adverse health comes in, in different racial ethnic groups, specifically in Black women. Uh, people of African descent, um, but looking at the intersection of race, class, and gender. Wow, that was all super interesting. <laughs> so you kind of touched on how racial discrimination is a well-recognized social determinant of health, and that's like a big term that we all use in public health. But to explain this to this concept to someone outside of public health, how would you define a social determinant of health? Yeah, I think that in terms of defining the social determinants of health as someone who's outside of public health, I, I think we'd like to look at in terms of those factors, those social factors that are not necessarily directly related to health, um, it is it is rather difficult to do. I mean, in terms of the model for social determinants of health, oftentimes we, we consider neighborhood and built environment, um, economic stability, education, uh, social in uh, community context, and as well as health and healthcare. Um, and you know, I, I would like to you know think that too that it extends beyond just these these factors. Some years ago, I was running a commission for the state of Connecticut. And this commission was very intentional in terms of the makeup. So there were a number of commissioners from different areas of um, uh, that were over different different areas in the state. So transportation, agriculture, education, social services, corrections, you know, et cetera. And in, for some of those commissioners, they had a difficult time understanding how their work would intersect with health. Um, when we talk about the social determinants of health, it allows us to look at those areas, particularly with people who are not from public health. And I love the way you phrase this question, because we can then look at and point out how there are health outcomes, health implications in all of those policies. So if someone is from the Department of Transportation, uh, there should be a conversation about how lack of transportation in certain communities can be a driver of poor health outcomes if people don't have access to food, if people don't have access to a, you know, a medical facility that's nearby, um, and how that can be you know, restrictive, even in terms of access to employment. So for, for a number of social factors, I would say we probably can't account for any social factors. And I think that we noticed that uh, with COVID. Uh, schools had a difficult time shutting down and they couldn't shut down uh, initially uh, because they didn't know what to do with the students, but at the same time they, they had to shut down because we had a health concern, right? Um, and and we, we, I think COVID, in the moment that we're, we're all currently in, we can see how this works in real time. Um, how when there is a health concern, it does take priority, right? And different systems have had to re-examine how they are going to um, address the work that they're currently doing relative to this global pandemic. So we, and we see there though too how it is, um, particularly people who are most vulnerable in our societies can be affected the most 
Um, and health works the same way. And, and regardless of, co prior to COVID, we would see though to people who are most vulnerable, be who are affected most adversely by those same policies there too. So again, people didn't have access to these concerns, but it became more pronounced um, with COVID-19. If anything good came out of COVID, it was the <laughs> attention that brought, we brought into social factors, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, the other part of this, too, and I, I think I mentioned, um, you know, the idea of, of health in all policies, but I, I think it really does speak to the policy uh, needs there, too, and, and that's where the, a lot of the work gets done. You know, sometimes, I mean, not often, I will say often, policies are, are shaped without thinking about um, people who are most vulnerable in society. And, and, and I think, that, and you're absolutely right, you know, in, in terms of COVID, I feel like sometimes we're missing the mark and I feel like it keeps coming up, whether we're talking about, um, you know, who's, you know, the fact that we couldn't shut systems down um, because, you know, I think of New York City schools, right? Uh, so de Blasio did not want to sh shut the schools down because there were a large number of homeless children, right? So that, that is a social issue that needs to be addressed anyway. Right, and when we see a global pandemic, it, it really um, highlighted that concern—the fact that the school system couldn't shut down. Um, so these are these are policy issues that that are that are paramount concern that we have to consistently address. And when we talk about the social determinants of health, it really gets to the heart of that in terms of really really uh, revisiting these policies and making sure that um, they are um, equitable. Exactly, which is why your research is so important. So I've been doing a little bit of research myself and in my public health studies, there's a lot of data on health disparities that suggests that communities of color, especially African-Americans, are most vulnerable to social inequalities with racial discrimination being the main driver of racial and ethnic health inequities. So just to define terms, what is the difference between inequality and equity? Since I know a lot of people kind of don't know how those are different. Yeah, of course. So let's start with an, an inequality. And I like to think of an inequality as simply, and this is really um, a an oversimplified way of describing it, but an inequality is, is simply a difference. Um, I use the example typically of heart disease. And if I just used arbitrary numbers, they said, you know, we're looking at differences across um, the population, specifically um, people, young people um, 18 to maybe, you know, 30 years of age or younger adults um, in compared heart disease rates to um, an older population, maybe 68 to about 80 um, plus years old, okay? We would expect to see what would be very different health outcomes there uh, with higher rates of heart disease in the older population, those folks who are 68 um, plus, okay? Um, compared to those who are 18 to 30 years of age, of course, in an 18 to 30 year, year old age population, we are going to see, you know, rates of heart disease for some, but across the board, we're going to see higher rates in the older population. That would be an inequality, okay, because that would be a difference. Um, with inequities, what we're seeing, we're seeing gross differences. There we would be looking at a population, 18 to 30 years of age, okay, and then we can add on other social factors. So, People are talking about race um, these days, and I, I appreciate that because I also consider myself to be a race scholar. So if we looked at populations, black and white, right, 18 to 30 year, years of age, we would see differences in those populations in terms of health outcomes. We could take heart disease, for example, we could take HIV, we could take diabetes, we could take asthma, hospitalizations. Um, we, it can go on and on and on and on. And if we continue to see differences in those populations, and the factor that would be the, the, um, the, the, the difference 
difference that, that would lead to that difference being race, okay? There we begin to talk about what, what is an inequity because it's social in nature. And if it's social in nature, that means that it's preventable, okay? That means that uh, we're able to see something that is, that is unjust. And what calls into question is really, you know, I would say even political will uh, to be able to make those changes, to correct those injustices, to fix what we're seeing there. Different than an inequality, all right? And in inequality, again, we're, we're seeing some things that we, we actually may think that would be, you know, uh, pretty consistent with, with the aging process. Now, I have to, the caveat here is that people use the terms interchangeably, right? And we may see, even in different cultural contexts, different countries may use the terms um, interchangeably. And, and I think that sometimes in the United States, you know, we, we often use inequality and inequity. Um, but in certain circles, and I think that as people become um, much more vested in, in understanding um, health equity, that they'll probably begin to appreciate inequities and those factors, those social factors that we can do something about. Yeah, definitely makes sense. So you kind of touched up on how policies are kind of some, some of the reasons why health inequities are maintained. Are there other reasons or possibilities of why health inequities are maintained in our society and why that those have persisted for so long? That's a great question. Um, I think that policies and systems, certainly um, the, the maintenance of those systems, and I think, in, 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 and I, I'm going to just be bold here and to say that in, in many cases, it's really to, you know, uh, to protect the status quo. I think that oftentimes um, people are very committed to the structures and not changing the structures, and our systems have not been set up for everyone to, to thrive, um, and that's, that's really what we're seeing. Um, and, and I like, I think this, this moment is so interesting, though, too, because, I mean, we're dealing with a communicable disease, and we're seeing it's at least the data showing the greatest impact on communities of color, disenfranchised populations, but it is a communicable disease, and it's a communicable disease that is, that's made us so that we're all kind of, you know, shut in, or at least our, our, our movement is restricted, and it, it does call the question, you know, what people are able to do and how we are all very much connected as human beings, right? So we, we do have to, you know, come together and to really look at a way to address this, but in the process, we have to address these inequities. Um, so we, we do have to re-examine our social structure. We have to examine, you know, who's benefiting from these social structures and who's left on the outside, on the periphery, and who's suffering. So I, I think that it does take that deep dive. Um, I mean, so the, the other piece of it, and, and I think that, you know, we've talked about racism, and, and I've, another hat that I wear is I, I do quite a bit of DEI trainings, diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings, and uh, so many organizations are, are really, at least seeming to be rather committed at this point to um, invest in ways to un dismantle, um, to undo racism. And they, as I mentioned, systems being an, an issue, but looking at systemic racism specifically, that allows for people to um, blindly accept a lot of the inequities that are built into those structures and those systems. So I think that through, through doing that work, this is one way to look at policies, right? Um, by kind of going in and deconstructing. And I often recommend to, to, to businesses, to organizations, when they are talking about um, wanting to kind of take some time to, to look at systemic racism, but they have to look at the systems and the policies that are currently in place. They have to look at 
how the organization has historically been run, right? And who is it benefiting? And I, the same thing, you know, goes across the board for, for, for government organizations. I mean, it really takes a reexamination of, of, of certain policies. And I, I think that's something that seems so simple. I mean, like, even if we think about like, you know, school uniforms, right? Um, you know, and, and this has come up before. So school uniforms, in, in some ways people would say, okay, it's great because, you know, all kids can't afford, um, you know, the clothing to, to go to school. Um, you know, so a uniform actually helps offset that because of cost. But on the other side, though, too, um, it's come up that all kids don't have access to um, a washer and dryer at home, right? If they don't have access to a washer and dryer at home, it would be difficult for them to keep a clean uniform. So, I mean, so, so in terms, you know, looking at how policies, again, ignore people who are the most disadvantaged, and I think that that's critical. And also teaching people skills to be able to look at um, their policies and to be able to look at society different particularly if they're in a place of privilege, uh, because privilege is so blind that people cannot see at times. And this is difficult, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of push here, because I, I, I have a tough time with the idea of people ignoring suffering, right? Um, but I think that there has been a programming, and it's historical programming, to not recognize the suffering of certain populations. Um, and we see this specifically in health and healthcare, um, in terms of, you know, looking at levels of racism in health and healthcare, where, where doctors don't see the pain of Black people, right? If a person comes in and re they recognize pain uh, to be communicated in one particular way, and if someone doesn't communicate pain in that particular way, it's ignored. Uh, so, so there's a lot of training that has to be done and retraining so that people can um, become much more sensitive and in tune to, I think, human suffering and how their advantage um, is really on the backs of other people. Very well said. Um, I know you touched about, upon how in your thesis or your dissertation, how you looked at the relationship between racism and obesity. So what are some other ways that racism can influence health outcomes over the course of someone's life? And what are some of these outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I like to say, though, too, that, you know, we talk about racism um, and the influence on health um, and health outcomes that it actually can begin quite early. Um, we can talk about racism beginning um, in utero, right? Uh, so um, before a child is born, um, if a mother is experiencing um, significant stress, significant stress due to racism, that can impact um, the the health of, of a child before a child is born. And of course, um, we're, we, we, we know that there are, um, you know, significantly poor health outcomes in Black women um, who give birth and Black babies um, as a result of this. So we see this early on. And what we often talk about in the study of uh, public health, specifically with public health in regard to racism and the pathways uh, to adverse health, is we, we consider the various pathways. So it can be in terms of stress, you know, and I mentioned stress before, the two from discrimination. And this can look like... Um, you know, someone living in a um, in a housing situation uh, where they are experiencing a discrimination, um, and it could also look as if someone's in an employment situation uh, where they're not being treated equitably. It could show up in an um, educational situation where you know a child or a parent has to go in and defend a child in a particular way. Um, it can show up in terms of economic disadvantage, or people don't have. Uh, fair and equitable access to income and other sources that they may be due as a result of race. 
um, we can also see as the result of this attune, and, and we think about these, these different uh, situations that people experience, the, these situations that take away and, and really compromise someone's humanity. And, and I think it's important to talk about the process, so too, and what actually happens to the body system. So when someone's experiencing racism, people are, are going to a fight or flight response. And what we see happening is that people are experiencing this over a period of time. And I, I like to just explain here, though, too, that I think that oftentimes we see a situation that was um, very much in our faces and um, with with police brutality in the in the recent case of, of, of George Floyd and that was um, was horrific it was horrific to see uh, the world saw what was happening um, and, and I'd like to add to that that when we talk about racism and the experience of racism among black people uh, there are those examples of those, um, you know, police brutality and this, this, this public lynching, if you will. But then there, there are these, these everyday ongoing episodes of racism and racist insults that people endure. And it could look like um, work experiences. It could look like housing experiences. It could look like, you know, attacks and, and fear for your children, um, preparing your children for confronting racism. Um, it could, you know, be attacks, at, you know, for, for someone, you know, and I think from an academic situation, you know, for, for professors to be promoted appropriately, right? Um, for how students interact with, with, with professors of color, um, you know, and it can go on and on and on. So the, the part here that I think that gets missed is oftentimes it's happening in, at multiple times in multiple situations, in multiple places and spaces. So it's not just one incident here. It's, it's a chronic um, ongoing cycle and process that, that people have a difficult time getting, there, there's, not, there's really not a whole lot of respite from it unless you're intentional about finding that place to go to. With that being said, right? Um, it, it obviously takes a toll on the body. So we, we see differences in terms of how people's blood pressures restore back to a normal healthy state. So we compared black and white people once again, we'll see that um, the blood pressure of a white person may restore uh, to a normal level, you know, in the evening, right? And we may see that it, it going, you know, kind of still being quite raised uh, rather high for a, a black person who experienced discrimination over time. And if this continues to happen over time, right, and we, we see the, these spikes in these, the, these spikes in, in blood pressure, high blood pressure over time, that leads to differences in health outcomes. That could lead to higher rates of hypertension. So let's talk to you about some of the responses. So if someone experiences discrimination, people may have different uh, responses to that, right? So, you know, some people may be able to talk about it. Some people, and, and through talking about it, and I think that this is a healthy response, um, is someone may be able to find some support and to kind of work through that. And I will say that that doesn't happen as frequently, particularly for people of color, because um, if, if even someone's support can very well be experiencing racism too, which makes it difficult to have the supports that you need to do that. Now I, I do see, and I, I have been very interested in researching uh, those, those healing spaces, if you will, that people can go to, to receive that kind of support. Um, but what we're seeing the two is, you know, we're seeing kind of shifts in behaviors, right? So people can engage in 
in um, adverse uh, behavioral practices, whether it be um, alcohol use, um, um, eating uh, foods that are at higher uh, fat content because it actually helps to offset um, you know, the, the feeling of stress, um, you know, alcohol use, drug use, etc. Um, they're also psychological processes, right? So the psychological processes can be um, internalized racism, and, and that happens. We see this across the board. People of color, people have been um, marginalized, people have been colonized. We see this, this internalized racism happening. Um, it could also lead to depression, anxiety, um, and, you know, some of that, those behaviors that I discussed before, it could act, those behaviors can actually help to offset some of those psychological concerns that could be there for a period of time, right? And of course, because someone engages in that behavior, it actually can, can kind of offset those psychological responses, but long-term, we could see adverse health outcomes. And of course, there are immediate psychophysiological responses. So in terms of a, you know, the impact on the central nervous system, the endocrine system, the metabolic system, um, and overall the immune system, if we continue to see this over time. So this can then lead to adverse health where we see conditions of, you know, can differences in cancer rates, um, diabetes, heart disease, um, you know, um, asthma rates, um, all of these things, once again, that have led to um, vulnerability um, for people of Africans and African-Americans. And what we're seeing, though, too, um, you know, uh, COVID is, is opportunistic, right? So if someone's immune system is already compromised, um, this is a perfect storm. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people don't really understand the physiological effects of so much stress and going through so much in the beginning of life. So that was really great. I actually wanted to go back and highlight how you mentioned police brutality and how that can exacerbate the adverse health effects, especially in African-Americans. And this has been, always been an issue and the current events painfully remind us of the racism that continues to impact Black communities. I actually wanted to ask, I know this myself, but to everyone else, to the audience, to listeners, what makes police brutality a public health issue? Yeah, police brutality is a public health issue. I started writing about this um, in 2015, and what we see with police brutality, I mean, <laughs> If we, we look at, and I think from a public health perspective, and we start with public health, I, I think any course I teach, we have to look at, you know, differences between morbidity and mortality, right? And we look at mortality, and then we look at how are people dying, right? And we look at differences in, you know, how long someone's expected to live and what people are dying from. And there we get to what we see are the inequities, all right? So if we talk about police brutality, and, and let's, I, I'm not going to say police, police brutality cleans it up, and we're not really getting to the heart of what it is. I call it police killings, and police killings, so, so basically we're talking about homicide, right, and what happens again, it becomes justified because it's a police officer, right, but it's an extrajudicial killing, um, so into rates of homicide, and we see rates of homicide actually higher, and we see much earlier in life, right, and at certain points in time, I believe it's between uh, zero and I believe uh, one, it's, it's the leading cause of death in black men. And then again, it peaks between, I believe, 13 and probably ages 25 for black men. So we talk about police brutality. We're talking about excess mortality rate. So it exacerbates what we already see in terms of excess mortality. And that's my very practical perspective in terms of rates and deaths and causes of death. All right. But then we have to get to the significance of an extrajudicial killing and what that means for people. I mean, here we're talking about... Um, the state really allowing for killings to happen and for mothers and for fathers and for uh, you know, grandmothers and for family members to have so much fear 
for their loved ones. And that fear being very chronic. And I know, and this is very personal to me, I, I have a black son. Um, and thinking and overthinking about the behaviors of yourself individually, but even what your child has to do to get home safe. So I did some interviews. I, I, I did a, a focus group, a couple, several focus groups actually, uh, for part of a qualitative study. Um, and I talked to boys. I believe the boys were 15 to maybe 18 years of age. And the boys shared stories of what they had learned from their parents about recent events and also explained what they saw in their fears. What the boys often spoke about was that their parents told them just to get home. Okay, so do whatever you have to do to get home. Um, they talked about trying to adjust their behaviors and really not knowing how to behave right? So do I, what do I wear? You know, how am I supposed to stand? And really to find um, in a, a position of deference so they would not be viewed as threatening. Um, so if you think about, you know, even looking at Black boys who are constantly thinking and overthinking, and this is not unusual for Black people to do this, or any person of color, you know, we think about the double consciousness, that's a big part of what it is, right? To be viewed as other, um, and to constantly think about your position and who you are in relation to other people, um, that's taxing. It's taxing, and it, and it does create this hypervigilance where you're constantly aware. And, and I, in this case, the two of police brutality, people are, are thinking about that and overthinking that so that they're not killed. You know, I, I think about times I've been pulled over by police officers, and my son's in the car with me, and my son's always been quite a, a big guy for his age. And I have to tell him, you know what, honey, make sure your hands are on your lap. And when you, when he, as soon as I put the window down, I have to explain to the officer that this is my son, who's 15, right? I have to do a lot of explaining first. And I told my son, you know, don't say anything. You don't have to be fearful and take your hood off your head, you know? And for myself, I, I have to kind of conduct myself accordingly. And it is, it's terrifying. And um, I, I think that for, for all the reasons I explained before in terms of racism being a public health issue, uh, we can take police brutality and we can um, associate it with probably an extreme example of racism and how it can take a toll on the body for community, okay? And I think when people see national police killings, people are not separating that and isolating that as an incident that happened in Baltimore or an incident that happened in Minneapolis, okay? It's, it's a chronic concern and it's happening all of the time. Right, and every time we see it happening, um, it's a reminder that this could happen to you or to someone that you love. Yeah, and it's just, I just, I don't know how to feel every time I see a news article. Mm -hmm. I feel angry. I feel frustrated. I just, right. it's just terrible. So, why do you think police brutality has existed for so long? Hmm. That's a great question. <laughs> I, I think that police brutality has existed for so long. Um, I'm gonna answer this in different ways. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think that the big part is, well, first of all, it's because it's been allowed to happen. And I, and I, I, I would not be honest if I didn't say um, because white people didn't care, right? And I think because people didn't care uh, because they didn't understand the impact Right, um, and I and I think and I think the question that comes up though too is um, why now, 
right? And you, you, because you were saying, like, why? And I think why not? I think because people were home, people were mm-hmm. quarantined, yeah. and they saw what happened. Yeah. And they, they, they had no choice but to see what happened. And their kids saw what happened. Mm-hmm. And there, the people were also not so busy. We're busy at home, we're quite busy at home, but they were not so busy to say, well, you know what, I'll have to focus on that at another time. Yeah. Um, what I do, DI trainings, people often tell me, organizations often tell me that we know it's a problem, but we just haven't had a chance or, you know, we're, we're so busy doing other things that we haven't been able to prioritize it. But people saw it. Um, and I, I, I have some other, you know, pieces to share there too. I mean, I remember like in 2015 when I was trying to find, you know, journals to publish, I couldn't find a journal to publish. People did not, public health journals did not want to publish anything that had to do with police brutality as a public health concern, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, the other uh, part of this as well, though, too, is um, in conversations that I had, early conversations, people were very uh, comfortable with believing that these were isolated incidents, mm-hmm. right? So what happened in Baltimore, that was a Baltimore thing. No, every city in the country is a Baltimore right? So th- this, is, this is not infrequent. So just because it's not affecting you doesn't mean that it, it's, it's, it's a concern. I mean, and the other thing that when we look at police brutality rates, I mean, we do see across the world, people uh, overall are being killed by police, right? We're, we're, seeing, um, we're seeing police killings um, in Native Americans, and that, also, that often gets silenced. White people are killed by police quite often, all right? Um, you know, so and, and Latina, Latinx communities are people, Latino men are killed by police quite often. Um, and it, and I, I would just emphasize that too, that we speak about, you know, even the Black Lives Matter movement, I, and I speak about Black Lives Matter movement because I think of it as a, as a kind of a contemporary civil rights movement. And they do speak about one of, if you look at their, um, their doctrine, health is one of the areas of their doctrine. Right. So as police, as is police brutality. So they, they don't disconnect the two. White people are killed by police. Um, Latin men are killed by police. Um, as, of course, black men and black people are killed by police. But when we were looking at those numbers in terms of, you know, Black Lives Matter and this being um, a focus for Black Lives Matter is we're looking at um, the percentage, the relative percentage. Right. So if black people account for, say, you know, 12 percent of the U.S. population. Right. And we're looking at the so, so they're able to see the proportional rate of police killings relative to the size of the population. So then we note the inequity. OK, um, so that police brutality is a problem overall. We have an issue with policing in this country. There's a policing issue in this country and that has to be addressed. And there, there are a number of um, organizations that are, that are specifically dedicated to this. But I, I think that it is important at this time to to link um, these topics, to link uh, policing with public health. Right. To link um, the, this. Um, and I and I want to just this, this the police killings and this this. this extrajudicial killing uh, to public health concerns and to, and, and to health concerns overall, right? And, and we have to do that. And I think that this strengthens the argument because when we think about health, health is one of the most sensitive indicators of someone's status in a society. And when it happens and we see the state being complicit in this, it says a lot about the position of people in a society. Mm-hmm. So from your research, what policies do you suggest that can be, that can be implemented to change this? what policies can be implemented to change this. I think that we have to, um, you know, that's, that's a tough question. Um, 
I, I don't think that it's, it's it certainly is not one policy, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I, I really think it's an approach. I, I mean, I think, and, and this is without um, taking a, sh a shortcut to answer the question here, you know, we, we talk about health equity and really, you know, finding the health equity in the policies, right? And that should be um, a, a real detailed analysis and a correction. Um, and sometimes, um, you know, an effort to actually um, eliminate policies uh, that are not serving people broadly. So I, I really think that this, an approach that is um, health enhancing and specifically health, health equity, which actually, it, it looks at the health outcome, but it's looking at those social structures, those social determinants that are aggravating those health outcomes, okay, leading to adverse health. So it's able to correct that. So that's what I think needs to happen, that we definitely have to take a different approach in terms of examining these policies and, and practices as mm -hmm. well, though, too. I mean, the idea with the, with the policies, and we want to make sure that people are accountable and that organizations and institutions are accountable for what it is that they're doing. So it's not just in a book that's put on a shelf, right? So we have to make sure that we hold these, these institutions accountable so that people are treated equitably and that um, uh, human rights aren't suffering as a result of institutions protecting their place in, in a situation we have right now where governments are uh, protecting uh, certain um, entities and institutions at, at the uh, cost of people and human suffering. Yeah, that makes sense. So as public health professionals, um, how can we help with addressing racism, racism in health and police brutality? Right. I think that we have to have a platform so that we're consistently talking about it and engaging um, in, in communication around this. I, I think that, you know, um, for public health, though, too, I, I think that public health has still been rather late. Um, so, so we've seen this um, research, and I, and I mentioned this, and this has actually been well-researched, right? But I don't think it's highlighted enough, and I don't think it has yeah. been highlighted enough. Mm -hmm. So I think that this needs to become a part of the educational practice in public health. And I would also mm -hmm. say, I spoke to someone yesterday, actually, who's a medical doctor who was actually uh, wanting to discuss training um, of residents. This also needs to become part of health practitioner um, education and practice as yeah. well, though, too. So doctors, nurses, et cetera, because we didn't talk too much about the healthcare system, but we're seeing, and it's systemic, right? So in terms of people holding values uh, to suggest that some people are more important than others and they're, they're, live, they're more human, you know, and their lives are more, um, you know, value or they're, or they're preferred patients, okay? And, you know, kind of looking down on other people or, you know, not having expectations of, of, of people. Um, we, we see this to happen across the board, whether it be, you know, um, um, elementary, secondary, post-secondary education. We see this happening in, in, in healthcare practice. Obviously, you know, in a criminal justice system, we see this happening. Um, so um, I, I think with public health, specifically, we have to make these connections. We have to make these connections and be able to highlight it. And we have to show um, how these, um, these actions, how racism and, and the impact of racism affects the health outcomes and how we're all very much tied to uh, the health of people who are connected to us.
in any community in our broader society. I think that that has to stand out. And I think that this moment is so important because I usually think of like the least among us, right? In terms of people who are suffering the most. Um, and when you have a communicable disease like this, this is, a, this is it's, it's global. If, if there is a part of the world where, where this is an issue, it potentially has, it, it can have an impact on any of us, right? Without a vaccine. Um, yeah. So we, we do have to really, uh, I would say, I mean, to be gentle, to say we have to re recalibrate, but, you know, we, we do have to look at what's just not working and, be, and to learn to be okay with throwing that away, right? Yeah. And, and to mm -hmm. come up with policies that are going to be self-sustaining for all people. Exactly. So stepping out of my role as a public health professional, as just a lay person, how can I help individually? I think that's great. You know what? I, I love what I love about this moment is I think that there is something for everyone to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I truly do. Um, I think that, that people have to work and people have to act where they are um, and, and recognize where you have influence, whether it be with your family or community people who you're affiliated with. Um, if there are other students who you're affiliated with, if it's, you know, in environmental science at, at Yale. Um, so regardless, use that space and use it as a, as a platform uh, to bring about change. And I think that that, that's, that, that has impact. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, and I probably shared, I don't know if I shared, I was working with a, a group of um, um, artists, um, they're the classical music performers uh, yesterday. Um, and they're trying to find ways to um, address racism um, in, in their work because they're working with uh, young people of color. Um, and, and for them, you know, it, it's, it's interesting, right? They're doing very different work than what we're doing. But of course, they had to speak about COVID. They had to speak about police brutality, mm -hmm. right? But we, I also had to share with them in terms of using what, what they have, using that space, you know, speaking about, you know, um, music artists or, or jazz artists, right? And what some of their struggles were in terms of some of their music and really even, and even looking at, you know, the instrument and using that, the, the music as a form of social protest. So I think wherever people are, whatever their areas of expertise are, um, or again, whatever the platform is to use that space and to, and, to, and to understand the connections between the work that you're doing and racism and health outcomes. And the other piece, and I'll add to this as well, is I think that we don't often think about racism as a human justice concern and that we are all part of it, right? I mean, I think that racism has taken away and robbed from all of us our humanity um, because when, and I, and I think it, it's, it's so challenging too, to know that people are out protesting in the midst of a pandemic, but we have to, right? We have to, because, you know, there is, to, to see that and to not do anything robs you of your humanity, right? Yeah. So, so it, it is, it's challenging to see people putting their lives at risk, but knowing that if people don't, their lives are at risk. Um, so I think that, again, for, for all of us, um, th there is something for us to do here. It's important that we don't stay quiet. Exactly. And I feel like now a lot of people understand that no matter how small the change is or how small their, be their change in behavior or how small the act of kindness or their actions are, a little bit goes a long way. And it's been really nice. I've been able Absolutely. to educate. Yeah. My friends, family. It's been nice. 
Yeah. And I think also the other part you mentioned, educate, you know, I think people, there's not expectation, obligation for people to, uh, to read, right. And, and to, yeah. to, to listen to the stories and the experiences and, and for, you know, unfortunately it seems, you know, and this is just the case, I'm a sociologist, so I, I take this for granted, but there are a lot of people I think who didn't, who, who don't understand the sociological concepts and how this works together. Right. So I, I think that there, there is, um, that there, it, the people do have to read, right? People do have to begin to understand. And I think that, and I love how you said you're, you, you're um, also educating family members. I think that those folks who have an understanding already, we have to be very patient, mm-hmm. right? At times so too, because there's a learning curve for some people uh, to, to begin to process this information. And it can be rather frustrating, um, yeah. but it is important that you're doing that work. Thank you. Well, I hope our listeners were able to to, um, learn something new today. Is there anything else you'd like to mention before we end? No, thank you for having me. This was a great show. Awesome. Well, thank you to Dr. Staggers for joining me on today's episode of the YGBM podcast. There are many people behind the scenes that you never get a chance to hear. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YGBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with editing and publishing our episodes. Thank you to the YGBM editorial board, especially our editors-in-chief, Amelia Hallworth and Wei Ying. And finally, thanks to you for tuning into this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. We love your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing us at ygbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. Thank you.